0: Good morning. If you'd uh, take out our text, it's going to be Mark 10, 1 through 12. And our text this morning says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That is our text for this morning. Pastor Tim.
1: Well, I suppose that the church has always had her doomsday prophets. You know the ones I'm talking about. They're always saying things like the American church is in decline. We're losing our young people at unprecedented rates. The moral fiber of the church is weakening. She is caving in on issues like abortion and homosexuality. Or regarding the issue that concerns us this morning... Christians divorce at the same rate as non-Christians, or some even go a step further and say, Christians divorce at a higher rate than that of the world. You've probably heard both of those statements with regard to marriage and divorce at some time or another, probably from a pulpit, but as it turns out, neither of those statements is remotely true. In fact, none of those statements preceding statements is accurate. When I hear people say such things as if they're fact, I always wonder what kind of church do they have in mind and what kind of Christians are they surveying? And that's the problem with these oft-quoted statistics. They originate from sociologists and pollsters who do not differentiate between healthy churches and unhealthy churches, between real Christians, and nominal Christians. So it's long past time that we set the record straight, particularly as it regards the state of Christian marriage. Glenn Stanton, who works for Focus on the Family, he wrote in a 2012 article for the Gospel Coalition, quote, Couples who regularly practice any combination of serious religious behaviors and attitudes, like attending church nearly every week, reading their Bibles and spiritual materials regularly, praying privately and together, generally taking their faith seriously, living not as perfect disciples, but as serious disciples, these couples enjoy significantly lower divorce rates than mere church members, the general public, and unbelievers. End quote," Bradley Wright, a sociologist for the University of Connecticut and author of the book, Christians are hate-filled hypocrites and other lies you've been told, found that those who self-identify as Christians but never attend church, okay, those are what we would call nominal Christians, Christians in name only. They would, what I would refer to are as fake Christians. Of those who are nominal Christians, 60% have been Divorced. But of those self-identified Christians who actually practice their faith, who attend church regularly, only 38% have been divorced. Similarly, Bradford Wilcox, a sociologist from the University of Virginia and the director of the National Marriage Project, he found that while nominal Protestants were actually 20% more likely to divorce than religiously unaffiliated Americans... Active conservative Protestants, okay, that's people like us, are actually 35% less likely to divorce than religiously unaffiliated Americans. What these three independent studies reveal is that while being a nominal Christian, a Christian in name only, makes you more likely to divorce, being a true Christian makes you far less likely to divorce. And I have a theory as to why that is. I think that nominal Christianity carries with it just enough external and internal pressure to marry rather than to merely cohabitate, to live together. But it's devoid of any of that power that actually makes marriage work. Power like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. This makes nominal Christians more likely to divorce than those who claim no religious affiliation, but I suspect that they are also more likely to marry in the first place. But authentic Christians, what... The man from Glenn Stanton from Focus on the Family called serious disciples. Not perfect disciples, but serious disciples. Those who know the power of grace at work in their life. Those who have been forgiven much and therefore love much. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God and are daily putting to death the deeds of the flesh and are seeking to walk according to the Spirit. Those who live their lives underneath the authority of Scripture. They have the power to overcome sin to persevere through the difficulties that every marriage faces and to find that mutual joy and fulfillment that marriage was designed to produce. So I want to say from the outset of this marriage that I don't believe that Christian marriage is in a state of crisis. Provided that we define the word Christian accurately. Neither do I believe that there is a marriage crisis at First Baptist Nixa. In 2015, which were the most recent statistics I could get my hands on, the national divorce rate sat at about 52%. So 32.2 marriages per 1,000 unmarried women versus 16.9 divorces per 1,000 married women. So the national divorce rate as of two years ago was 52%. At First Baptist Nixa, I simply went through our our membership role, our covenant members, and took a percentage that, to my knowledge, is accurate. At First Baptist Nixa, a very informal survey of our membership revealed that, to my knowledge, 23% of our adult members have been through a divorce, which is less than half the national average. And many of those 23% who have been through a divorce are now years, and in many cases, decades into a second strong, healthy, biblical marriage. So I'm not going to approach this message like an alarmist. There's no cause for alarm. Christian marriage, like the church, is built by Christ and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But that doesn't give us license to skip over Mark 10, 1 through 12. Because we still need instruction, correction, exhortation, and encouragement that comes from the Scriptures. Let me give you four reasons then why we're going to spend this morning in this passage rather than skipping over it. Reason number one, marriage in our surrounding culture is in a full-blown state of crisis. The redefinition of marriage, the reevaluation of its necessity and its place within society that has occurred in the last 10, 20, even 50 years is staggering, and we need to know how to deal with it. Reason number two, we're not isolated from this cultural trend. For one thing, we, we interact daily with a culture that devalues marriage in our own extended families. With our children, our parents, our siblings, in the workplace, and in the constant bombardment of the media that we take in, in books, and television, and magazines, and movies. And for another thing, many of us were part of that marriage-defiling culture before we were called by Christ out of that culture and into the church, and we've brought our past, our history, and our baggage with us. Number three, simply put, marriage is hard. It is. Even after we're converted, we remain sinners who struggle against the flesh every day of our life. So marriage takes two people who by nature are self-absorbed sinners, unites them together, and thrusts them into the crucible of family, children, jobs, life. I mean, what could possibly go wrong in this picture? Reason number four, though there is not a pervasive marriage crisis at First Baptist Nixa, there are marriages in our church that are in a state of crisis, and these marriages need truth and hope that comes from the Word of God. So for these reasons and more, we need We need this passage. We need its instruction, its correction, its exhortation, its encouragement. We need the Word of God. Not for most of us because we're currently in a state of crisis, but because we want to keep our marriages strong. And as we heard from the research that I cited earlier, it's precisely what we're doing today. Gathering as the people of God to hear the Word of God, to receive its instruction, its correction, its exhortation, its encouragement. That's the very thing that keeps marriages thriving. And it's the very thing that may even bring some marriages back from the brink of death. So we're going to dive into this text, and we're going to approach it with all the seriousness that we've been approaching all of the Gospel of Mark. It's for us, by God's providence, it's for us today, and we need it. But I want you to know from the outset that I am aware of how sensitive and troubling this subject may be for many of you. Most of you have shared your stories with me. As I was writing this message, several names popped up in my mind. And I thought, gonna mm, that's going to hurt. That's going to cause some feelings. This is going to hurt over here. I'm aware of that. I'm not insensitive to that. For some of you... This morning is going to bring up powerful feelings of guilt and shame and regret. For others of you, it's going to bring reminders of pain and betrayal and shattered dreams. For some, it's going to bring up reminders of a broken childhood. So though I've had a swimming in marriage statistics this morning, I'm convinced that divorce was never meant to be quantified into numbers. It's too painful a story to be told in mere percentages. The severing of the one flesh union leaves scars that don't quickly fade and never really go away. But my encouragement to you this morning, to all of you, is that we have nothing to fear from the light. We have nothing to fear from the light. Is it painful to take your past and to drag it into the light? Yes. Is it pleasant to raise up those emotions that may have been stuffed down deep and to feel them all over again? No. But is it healing? Always. So whether whether you're here this morning and you're happily married or unhappily married, whether you're happily single or unhappily single, not yet married or recently divorced, we need this. We need truth We need grace, and we're going to find both from Jesus' words in Mark 10 this morning. So let's dive in. One of the factors that makes biblical interpretation rather difficult at times is that there exists an enormous chasm between the first century Jewish culture and our 21st century Western culture. We simply cannot ignore the fact that the social, political, economic, and religious components that comprise what we call culture differ vastly between the world of the Bible and the world that we know today. That said, however, the essential nature of man remains unchanged from the world of the Bible to the world of today. Essentially, man is the same. We're still created in the image of God. We still possess rationality, morality, and spirituality, which is why no matter where you go and no matter what epoch of history you you look or you travel, you're going to find a culture that shares certain social, political, economic, and religious cores. Everywhere you go, no matter the time or the place, you will find human beings living in community because we are a social creature. You'll find us living underneath a government structure because we are orderly creatures. You'll find us participating in some semblance of an economy because we're productive creatures. And you will find in every culture the impulse to worship something or someone larger than itself because we are a spiritual creature. And everywhere you go, in every era of history, you will find the institution of marriage and family. But, because of our universal fall in Adam, the image of God in us has been universally corrupted by sin. And that's why everywhere you go, no matter what geography or what epoch of history, you will also find the corruption and the perversion of every one of those cultural elements. You'll find communities ravaged by sin and evil. You'll find governments infected with corruption. You'll find economies out of balance, either given to greed or sloth. You'll find people who have exchanged the worship of the true and living God for idols. And you'll find the breakdown of marriage and the disintegration of the family. It doesn't matter whether it's first century Israel or 21st century Nixah. So this word is extraordinarily relevant to us this morning because it addresses the very same problems that we face in our marriages, that we face in our own sinful hearts, and that we face in our own cultures. Marriage is one of those realms in which little has changed from the days of Christ to the present day. When it comes to marriage and divorce, there really isn't a a huge cultural gap to overcome. Divorce, listen to me, divorce was as rampant in 1st century Israel as it is in 21st century America. Just like today, in the 1st century, they had a kind of no-fault divorce provision in their rabbinical law. And it is, in fact, that rabbinical controversy over the divorce provision in the Torah that forms the backdrop of Jesus' words. So I want you to look down with me at Mark 10.1. Mark says, and he left there, and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. I want to caution you that this first verse is not a throwaway. There's an important piece of information in here that we need to get, or else it's going to send our interpretation of the rest of the passage off kilter. This is not a mere transition between stories. Mark's giving us essential geographic information. Mark tells us that Jesus left there, the there is Capernaum in Galilee, look at Mark 9.33, and he traveled south into the region of Judea and then east beyond the river into the region known as Perea. Now why is that important? Perea was the territory and jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who we've met before in Mark chapter 6. It's also the old stomping grounds of John the Baptist. In other words, even though the topic of marriage and divorce was probably not the main subject of Jesus' teaching, it helps us to understand why the Pharisees chose this subject with which to test him, which Mark tells us in verse 2 is exactly what they were doing. The Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, you remember that this is exactly the topic that got John the Baptist killed. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 6, John had publicly rebuked Herod Antipas for divorcing his wife in order to marry Herodias, who was the wife of his brother Philip. It's for that reason that Herod had John arrested, and it's for that reason that Herodias eventually succeeded in having John beheaded. So no doubt by posing this particular question in this particular location, probably in a very public forum, that the Pharisees intend to see Jesus suffer the same fate that John had suffered. They want Jesus arrested just like John had been arrested, and they want Jesus destroyed just like John had been destroyed. Now, although Mark does not actually record the full question, in the parallel text in Matthew 19 we find out that there's a little bit more to the Pharisees' question than Mark actually gives us. Matthew 19.3 says this, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and then note what he adds, for any cause? In other words, the issue here in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew 19, those are those are two versions of the same event, the issue in the debate is not divorce per se, but divorce for any cause. No-fault divorce. The question, in other words, was not regarding the legitimacy of divorce itself, but rather the grounds for divorce. It was not whether divorce is legal, but when is divorce legal. See, no first century Jew disputed or denied the legitimacy of divorce in certain circumstances because there was a provision for divorce written in black and white in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And in fact, it is that passage in Deuteronomy 24.1 that the Pharisees immediately turned for justification of their view. So Mark chapter 10 and verse 3, Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now they're talking about Deuteronomy 24.1, which reads like this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. Then Moses goes on and he forbids the remarriage of those original spouses if there's been an intervening marriage. That's Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. So, back in Mark 10, we find ourselves in the midst of an ongoing debate about when divorce is permissible. And in first century Judaism, there were several different schools of thought with regard to the meaning of that phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1, some indecency. If a man finds some indecency in his wife, what does some indecency mean? Well, one stream of thought interpreted that phrase very conservatively, very narrowly, and they said some indecency can only refer to adultery in which case the man was required to divorce his wife. That was the issue at stake with Joseph and Mary, you'll remember, before the angel came to Joseph in a dream. Another stream of rabbinical thought interpreted some indecency very liberally to refer to any number of things that a wife might step out of line. In a very famous passage from the Mishnah, now the Mishnah is the rabbinical interpretation of the Old Testament, Their commentary of what the Old Testament means. A summary of those various views are provided. So let me read to you just one tiny passage from the Mishnah. It says, the school of Shammai. Now, Shammai was a 1st or 2nd century B.C. rabbi. The school of Shammai says, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, for it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. The school of Hillel, another rabbi, says, a man may divorce his wife even if she spoiled a dish for him. For it is written, because he has found any indecency in her. Rabbi Akiba, another rabbi, says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and if she shall find no favor in his eyes. So you see, three radically different views of when divorce is permissible all basing themselves on the same text of Scripture. Such as the wickedness of men, by the way, twisting the Scriptures to justify their sin. And clearly the Pharisees are in agreement with the liberal strain of interpretation because they knew where John the Baptist stood on the issue of divorce. They must have known where Jesus stood as well because this is not the first time that he's spoken very plainly on divorce and remarriage. And if they had agreed with John and Jesus who both upheld the sanctity of marriage, then this question would not have actually been a test. So as you can see, the current climate of marriage in Jesus' day was not so different from our own. The only real difference lies in the fact that in the male-dominated culture of first century Judaism, it was only the husband who had the right to divorce his wife for any cause. And in our day, the wife may put away her husband just as easily as the husband may put away his wife. The only difference in cultures, therefore, is that we've become equal opportunity defilers of marriage. Now, every once in a while, just parenthetically, this is for free, every once in a while I run across a word that says in one word what otherwise it would have taken me ten words to say. And I love it when that happens because not only does it expand my vocabulary, but it reduces the word count on my sermon manuscript and it tricks Mike into thinking I'm going to preach a shorter sermon than I actually intend on preaching. So it's a win-win. Of course, the irony of all of this is that when I then have to define the word for you, it actually expands my word count longer and it makes the sermons longer and doesn't actually save me any time. But it's kind of fun for me anyway. All right. So anyway, the word for the day, I'm going to teach you a new word. You can press your friends at parties. The word for the day is casuistry. I want you to say it with me. casuistry. Very good. Casuistry refers to the specious, deceptive, or over-subtle reasoning, especially in questions of morality. It's the dishonest application of general principles. In other words, casuistry is the resolving of ethical dilemmas by bending or twisting the rules to work in your And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing in Deuteronomy 24. They were bending the rules of interpretation in order to make the text say something that they wanted it to say. They were broadly defining the word indecency to fit their needs, and they were debating, therefore, all of the different ways in which a wife could fall out of favor with her husband in order to come to the conclusion that they wanted to come to all along. But in so doing, they were ignoring the spirit of the command, not to mention the entire context of scripture in which that command exists. And Jesus is simply not going to allow them to do it. He's not going to allow them to get away with that kind of logical reasoning. He's not going to allow them to twist the scriptures to justify their sin and to legitimize their lust. So he responds to their question from Deuteronomy 24 by going back even further than Deuteronomy to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the very institution of marriage itself in order to design, describe, and define an overarching design for marriage that supersedes this allowance that came up in Deuteronomy 24. So look with me at verse 5 of Mark 10. Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart,' He wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate. Let me break Jesus' response into three parts, and I'm going to draw out their implications for us. Number one. The divorce provision in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus says, was never a part of God's design for marriage. Rather, it was an accommodation to the reality of human sin. It came about as the result of the hardness of man's heart. In other words, if the fall had never taken place, divorce would never exist, but marriage still would. Marriage was instituted before the fall, and the declaration that it is good resides upon the institution of marriage. Until Christ returns, marriage remains, but unfortunately, Genesis 3 happened. Sin entered into the world, sin entered into the human heart, therefore sin entered into the institution of marriage. All divorce, therefore, is a result of the fall. It's the result of sin. Well, there's a problem then. The problem is that until Jesus returns, we live as fallen creatures in a fallen creation and sin remains a reality that we've got to deal with. Therefore, divorce will remain a reality even among the covenant people of God. As such, therefore, divorce needs to be regulated in order to restrain sin and to reduce its consequences upon the victim, upon the family, and upon the church. That's why, when giving the law to the nation of Israel, God made a provision for divorce in order to regulate it, to restrain it, and to reduce its consequences upon the victim, particularly upon the woman. Now, as far as restricting the practice of divorce, the Mosaic provision of Deuteronomy 24 allowed for divorce only in instances of indecency, not for any reason at all. Now, the question is, what does some indecency refer to? And that question's complex if you're talking about the Hebrew grammar of it, but what does seem clear is how Jesus understood it. Jesus evidently understood some indecency as allowing for divorce only in the cases of adultery or some other form of illicit sexual activity. That's how Jesus understood Deuteronomy 24.1. Now why do I say that? Because twice, when Jesus teaches on the subject of divorce, he specifically states that sexual immorality is the only grounds for severing the marriage covenant. Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and Matthew 19, 9. Therefore, I think it's obvious that Jesus understood Deuteronomy 24 as restricting the allowance to divorce only in cases of sexual betrayal. Furthermore, Deuteronomy 24 served to reduce the consequences of divorce upon the women who lived in a patriarchal, male-dominated society. In other words, a man could not merely send his wife away with no regard for her continued well-being, leaving her with no means of support. So if a man wanted to divorce his wife, whether he had just cause or not, he had to give her a certificate of divorce which functioned as a right of remarriage so that the divorced woman could legally be wed to another man who would then provide for her care. In summary then, Deuteronomy 24 was never designed to be used the way the Pharisees were using it to permit divorce whenever you wanted. That was never its intent. Its intent was to restrict divorce to only this specific circumstance, namely adultery, and to reduce its consequences upon the women who were too easily being sent away. Second, Even though divorce was permitted by Moses in certain circumstances in order to restrict its practice and reduce its consequences, it was never a part of God's design. According to Jesus, the Pharisees are guilty of failing to interpret Deuteronomy 24 in light of the whole context of Scripture and the overarching redemptive narrative of the Bible. An allowance by Moses because of the fall of man into sin, does not alter in any way God's original and prior design for marriage. In other words, just because sin has now made the regulation of divorce necessary does not mean that we now aim for divorce and accept it as part of God's plan. That's not the the posture that we take towards divorce. Or to state it another way, divorce is permitted. In certain circumstances. But lifelong covenant marriage is commanded by God. Jesus establishes this by referencing two verses from Genesis 1 and 2. In Mark 10:6, he says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, citing Genesis 1:27. In Mark 10, 7, and 8, he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, quoting from Genesis 2, 24. So Jesus argues against their very broad definition of divorce by alluding back to God's original design for marriage and saying that the nature of marriage itself cries out against the monstrosity of divorce. Because marriage is more than the uniting of two people in a mutual agreement to live together, to have children together, and to look after one another. It's more than that. Marriage is more than a contract. It is a holy covenant forged by God himself. That's what Jesus is going to say in verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It's a holy covenant in which a man and a woman are united by God in a mystical union that binds them together emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, socially, economically, and in every other conceivable fashion. We have no human relation like it. That's God's design for marriage, that a man and a woman whom he created for this union would partner with one another in an indissoluble bond, thus creating an entirely new entity that would become the building block of his new created order, namely the family. This is God's design. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh, which is far more than just the physical sexual act. And they would create something new and beautiful, namely a new household, a family, generations. Now understood against the backdrop of this design, divorce becomes a monstrous deformity of nature. Which brings us to the third component of Jesus' response, which is the inevitable conclusion from God's divine design. What therefore God has joined together, verse 9, let not man separate. So marriage, therefore, is a holy covenant forged by God, which man has no right nor authority to sever. Listen to James Edwards on this verse. He says, quote, the greatest difference between Jesus and the rabbis, however, is this. By giving a husband principal control over his wife, the Jewish divorce policy made the man lord of the marital relationship. According to Jesus, however, it is neither man nor woman who controls marriage, but rather God who is the lord of marriage. In summary, then, Jesus responds to the moral casuistry, of the Pharisees by saying that they've misunderstood the purpose and the spirit of Deuteronomy 24 just as they had misunderstood the whole of the law. A law regulating the extent and effect of sin does not represent the way of righteousness. A law permitting divorce is not the goal that we strive for. Rather, the divine design for marriage clearly reveals that the marriage covenant is a holy union forged by God, which man has no right nor authority to sever at his whim. God is the Lord of the marriage covenant. If we're going to partake of his good gift of marriage, we must partake of it according to his design. Well, as usual, the disciples require further explanation of Jesus' statement. And so they ask him when they're alone in the house, and Jesus, in turn, gives his famous decree regarding divorce and adultery. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, in order to understand Jesus' decree, I want you to remember two very important points of context. Two, maybe three. Three. Number one, there is a general problem within the Jewish culture perpetuated by the Pharisees and their predecessors of a kind of no-fault divorce in which a husband could put away his wife for any variety of spurious reasons, not least of which is that he found someone else more attractive. That happened, and it happened a lot. That's context number one. Number two, in particular, that's the very thing that happened with Herod and Herodias, Herod was married to a woman named Phasaelus, but he wanted Herodias, who was married to Herod's brother Philip, and so he sent away his wife, it was all very legal, he sent away his wife, she put away her husband, and then they married, and the religious elite of the day gave their sanction to it. John the Baptist said, no, you cannot legalize your lust through the means of divorce, You cannot legitimize your adultery just by making sure that you write this certificate of divorce and send her away all right and proper. Just because you have your papers in order does not mean that your heart is right before God. And that's what Jesus is coming against here. Third piece of context, remember that in the parallel passage in Matthew 19, Jesus adds the divorce Or the adultery exception. So this isn't the only thing that he says with regard to it. So it's against such defiling of the sanctity of marriage that Jesus says, in effect, you cannot legitimize your adulterous lusts by the legal means of divorce. So if you are married to your spouse, but you begin to desire another, but you know that adultery is against the law, whether it be the civil law or God's law, you cannot circumvent God's design for marriage, nor can you escape his punishment for adultery merely by obtaining a legal divorce and making it all all right and proper, in the judgment of God, you are still an adulterer, and you will be recompensed as such, Thus saith the Lord. Now, I want to bring this passage and the sermon in for a landing by focusing on some implications for the marriages and the members of First Baptist Nixon. What are we to do with this? Before I list four of them for you, I want you to recognize I haven't said everything there is to say about marriage and divorce and remarriage this morning. This passage doesn't say everything there is to say, and this sermon doesn't either. My intention this morning is not to answer every question. It's not to deal with every eventuality. I'll let you know that we still live as fallen creatures in a fallen world. Consequently, I still think there are times when divorce is a legitimate means of dealing with sin, restricting it, and reducing its consequences. I just don't think that it's nearly as permissible as we like to think. So, by way of application and hoping, therefore, to be very helpful to you, I want to address four challenges to First Baptist Nixa with regard to marriage. So here are your challenges this morning. Number one, we need to be a church that upholds the sanctity of marriage by striving for the divine design rather than settling for the allowance of divorce. And that's going to take a lot of hard work. We need to regard marriage as the holy covenant that it is. Marriage is, one more time, it is the mystical union between a man and a woman that binds them together emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually, socially, economically, and in every other conceivable fashion, and results in the establishment of a family, which is the building block of churches and of all of creation. Therefore, the severing of this marriage bond amounts to a rending of the very fabric of creation. So marriage is a sacred thing. It's a holy thing. And at this church, we need to treat it as such. We need to be a church that rejoices at the joining together of a man and a woman. We need to be a church that celebrates and loves weddings. And we need to be a church that weeps and mourns when marriages die. I wholeheartedly believe that the death of a marriage in this church is far more tragic than the death of a believing member. And if your marriage is currently in trouble, I beg of you to get help. There is help. I don't care how far gone it feels. I don't care what kind of sins have been committed. I don't care how painful it is. There is a way out. And there is a way back. Get help. Implication number two. We need to regard God as the author and Lord of marriage. Therefore, we need to live in marriage according to his commands. God is not silent on the question of what marriage is, who can marry, and to whom you may be married. I haven't spoken everything there is to say about that, but it's in here. He has determined when and how and who we should marry. He has determined when and if we may divorce. And he has determined when and if and who we should remarry. The Bible is not silent on these matters, and it's not just up to you. We dare not rewrite God's rules, and we dare not separate what God has joined together. Marriage does not belong to us, it belongs to God. Number three, we need not make the same mistake as the Pharisees who interpreted a single passage of Scripture in isolation from the whole and ended up twisting it to suit their sin. Okay, for them that meant interpreting Deuteronomy 24 with its rather open-ended provision for divorce in isolation from the entirety of Scripture and its teaching on the nature of marriage with the result that they allowed divorce in a wide array of illegitimate circumstances. Let me tell you what that looks like for us. For us, this could look like taking verses 11 and 12 where Jesus says, if you divorce your your spouse unlawfully and you marry another, you're an adulterer. And we could begin to treat either explicitly or implicitly in this church, divorce, whether lawful or unlawful, as the unforgivable sin upon which we place the stigma of a never-ending shame and in so doing, we end up denying the very gospel that we're called to proclaim. So if you're here this morning, And you're among those who have been party to an unbiblical divorce. Maybe you're the one that put your wife away or put your husband away and married another. Maybe you find yourself in a remarriage that Jesus classifies as adulterous. What are you going to do? Let me apply the gospel to you this morning. There is grace, forgiveness, cleansing, and atonement through the blood and death of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for unbiblical divorces. Jesus died for adulterous remarriages. So don't deny the gospel by having or allowing the law to have the final say over your life. So if that's you this morning, then you need to embrace. Christ by faith, and you need to rest your life, including its unbiblical divorce, including its adulterous remarriage, you need to rest those things in the atoning death of Christ for your sins, and you need to allow the gospel to speak the final word over your life and over your marriage. In Christ, your unlawful divorce can be forgiven. And in Christ, Your adulterous remarriage is now clean and holy. And so I say to you this morning the same thing that Jesus said to the adulterous woman of John chapter 9. Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let's apply that. If through confession and faith you have taken the sins of your past and you have placed them in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, Jesus does not condemn you. You are not condemned. And your remarriage is clean and holy and right. Now treat it as such. Glorify God in this marriage that has been cleansed and sanctified by the blood of Jesus. Implication number four. Let's not be a church that devalues the gift of singleness. Now that may sound strange to you in a message about marriage. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. Whether you have never been married or you've been divorced... Don't think that your only happiness lies in a state of marriage. It's a lie. Go home and read the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And hear Paul speak to you and say, don't waste your singleness by longing to be married. Use it. Use your singleness. Use it to wring as much Christ-exalting joy out of your life as you possibly can because you have been given an extraordinary gift, namely, unhindered devotion to Christ and His ministry. You are not burdened by the responsibilities that burden those who are married. Now... Paul turns right around and he says, yet marriage is good and it's right. Don't let what I just said negate everything that I've been saying all morning. I'm suggesting to you singles that your singleness is a gift. And you belittle it if you treat it like a curse. Could it be that you find yourself in your state of singleness for a reason? Could it be that God intends to pour out his blessing and joy upon you in this state of freedom in which you find yourself? So don't lightly throw away this gift of singleness, either by spending all of its time longing to be married or by rushing into a second marriage that is no better than your first. Use your singleness. Let me speak to the married of the church in this regard. Stop talking about marriage as if it's the only way to be happy. Don't tell young women that. Don't tell young men that. Don't tell divorcees that. Don't tell widows or widowers that. Listen, marriage is good, and it's right, and it's holy, when it's holy, but it's not the only way to be happy. Jesus was happily single. Paul was happily single, and so can you be. In fact, I could give you examples of people who married who would be happier now having been single. Don't waste your singleness. So First Baptist Nixa, whether you are married or single, whether you're divorced or remarried, let us hold marriage in honor as the holy lifelong covenant it is and what therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate.